Section 10 of Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1, by Albert Hubbard. William E. Gladstone, Part 1. As the aloe is said to flower only once in a hundred years, so it seems to be but once in a thousand years that nature blossoms into this unrivaled product and produces such a man as we have here. Gladstone, Lecture on Homer. American travelers in England are said to accumulate sometimes large and unique assortments of lisps, drawls, and other very peculiar things. Of the value of these acquirements, as regards their use and beauty, I have not room here to speak. But there is one adjunct which England has that we positively need, and that is boots. It may be that boots is indigenous to England's soil, and that when transplanted he withers and dies. Perhaps there is a quality in our atmosphere that kills him. Anyway, we have no boots. When trouble, adversity, or bewilderment comes to the homesick traveler in an American hotel, to whom can he turn for consolation? Alas, the porter is afraid of the guest, and all guests are afraid of the clerk, and the proprietor is never seen, and the Afro-Americans in the dining room are stupid, and the chambermaid does not answer the ring. But at last the weary wanderer hies him to the barroom, and soon discovers that the worthy barkeep has nothing to recommend him but his diamond pin. How different, yes, how different this would all be if Boots were only here. At the quaint old city of Chester, I was met at the station by the Boots of that excellent, though modest hotel, which stands only a block away. Boots picked out my baggage without looking for it, took me across to the inn, and showed me to the daintiest, most homelike little room I had seen for weeks. On the table was a tastefully decorated jug, evidently just placed there in anticipation of my arrival. And in this jug was a large bunch of gorgeous roses, the morning dew still on them. When Boots had brought me hot water for shaving, he disappeared and did not come back until, by the use of telepathy, for Boots is always psychic, I had sent him a message that he was needed. In the afternoon he went with me to get a draft cashed. Then he identified me at the post office and introduced me to a dignitary at the cathedral whose courtesy added greatly to my enjoyment of the visit. The next morning after breakfast, when I returned to my room, everything was put to rights, and a fresh bouquet of cut flowers was on the mantel. A good breakfast adds much to one's inward peace. I sat down before the open window and looked out at the great oaks dotting the green meadows that stretched away to the north, and listened to the drowsy tinkle of sheep bells as the sound came floating in on the perfumed breeze. I was thinking how good it was to be here, when the step of boots was heard in the doorway. I turned and saw that mine own familiar friend had lost a little of his calm self-reliance. In fact, he was a bit agitated. But he soon recovered his breath. Mr. Gladstone and his lady have just arrived, sir. 
they will be here for an hour before taking the train for london sir i told his clerk there was a party of americans here that were very anxious to meet him and he will receive you in the parlor in fifteen minutes sir then it was my turn to be agitated but boots reassured me by explaining that the grand old man was just the plainest most unpretentious gentleman one could imagine that it was not at all necessary that i should change my suit that i should pronounce it gladstone not gladstone and that it was harden not harwarden and then he stood me up looked me over and declared that i was all right on going downstairs i found that boots had gotten together five americans who happened to be in the hotel he introduced us to a bright little man who seemed to be the companion or secretary of the prime minister he in turn took us into the parlor where mr gladstone sat reading the morning paper and presented us one by one to the great man we were each greeted with a pleasant word and a firm grasp of the hand and then the old gentleman turned and with a courtly flourish said gentlemen allow me to present you to mrs gladstone mr gladstone was wise he remained standing this was sure to shorten the interview a clergyman in our party who had an impressive cough and bushy whiskers acted as spokesman and said several pleasant things closing his little speech by informing mr gladstone that americans held him in great esteem and that we only regretted that fate had not decreed that he should have been born in the united states mr gladstone replied fate is often unkind and then he asked if we were going to london on being told that we were he spoke for five minutes about the things we should see in the metropolis his style was not conversational but after the manner of a man who was much used to speaking in public or to receiving delegations the sentences were stately the voice rather loud and declamatory his closing words were yes gentlemen the way to see london is from the top of a bus from the top of a bus gentlemen then there was an almost imperceptible wave of the hand and we knew that the interview was ended in a moment we were outside and the door was closed the five americans who made up our little company had never met before but now we were as brothers we adjourned to a side room to talk it over and tell of the things we intended to say but didn't we all talked and talked at once just as people do who have recently preserved an enforced silence how ill-fitting was that gray suit yes the sleeves were too long did you notice the absence of the forefinger of his left hand shot off in eighteen hundred forty-five while hunting they say but how strong his voice is he looks like a farmer eighty-five years of age think of it and how vigorous then the preacher spoke and his voice was sorrowful oh but i made a botch of it was it sarcasm or was it not was what sarcasm when mr gladstone said that fate was unkind in not having him born in the united states and we were all silent then boots came in and we put the question to boots who decided it was not sarcasm the next day when we went away we rewarded boots bountifully william gladstone is england's glory yet there is no english blood in his veins his parents were scotch aside from lord brougham he is the only scotchman 
who has ever taken a prominent part in British statecraft. The name as we first find it is Gledstane, Gled being a hawk, literally a hawk that lives among the stones. Surely the hawk is fully as respectable a bird as the eagle and a goodly amount of granite in the clay that is used to make a man is no disadvantage the name fits there are deep-rooted theories in the minds of many men and still more women that bad boys make good men and that a dash of the pirate even in a prelate does not disqualify but i wish to come to the defense of the sunday school story-books and show that their very prominent moral is right after all it pays to be good William Ewart Gladstone was sent to Eton when he was twelve years of age From the first his conduct was a model of propriety He attended every chapel service and said his prayers in the morning and before going to bed at night He could repeat the catechism backwards or forwards and recite more verses of scripture than any other boy in school He always spoke the truth he never played hooky nor as he grew older would he tell stories of doubtful flavor or allow others to relate such in his presence his influence was for good and cardinal manning has said that there was less wine drunk at oxford during the forties than would have been the case if gladstone had not been there in the thirties he graduated from christ church with the highest possible honors the college could bestow and at twenty-two he seemed like one who had sprung into life full-armed at that time he had magnificent health a fine form vast and varied knowledge and the command of language so great that he was a master of forensics his speeches were fully equal to his later splendid efforts in feature he was handsome the face bold and masculine eyes of piercing luster and hair which he tossed when in debate like a lion's mane he could speak five languages sing tenor dance gracefully and was on more than speaking terms with many of the best and greatest men in england besides all this he was rich in british gold now here is a combination of good things that would send most young men straight to perdition not so gladstone he took the best care of his health systematized his time as a miser might listened not to the flatterers and used his money only for good purposes his intention was to enter the church but his father said not yet and half forced him into politics so at this early age of twenty-two he ran for parliament was elected and has practically never been out of the shadow of westminster palace during these sixty-odd years at thirty-three he was a member of the cabinet at thirty-six his absolute honesty compelled him for conscience's sake to resign from the ministry his opponents then said gladstone is an extinct volcano and they have said this again and again but somehow the volcano always breaks out in a new place stronger and brighter than ever it is difficult to subdue a volcano when twenty-nine he married catherine glynn sister and heir of sir stephen glynn baronet the marriage was most fortunate in every way for over fifty years this most excellent woman has been his comrade counsellor consolation friend his wife how can any adversity come to him who hath a wife said chaucer if this splendid woman had died 
then his opponents might truthfully have said gladstone is an extinct volcano but she is still with him and a short time ago when he had to undergo an operation for cataract this woman of eighty was his only nurse the influence of gladstone has been of untold value to england his ideals for national action have been high to the material prosperity of the country he has added millions upon millions he has made education popular and schooling easy his policy in the main has been such as to command the admiration of the good and great but there are spots on the sun on reading mr gladstone's books i find he has vigorously defended certain measures that seem unworthy of his genius he has palliated human slavery as a necessary evil has maintained the visibility and divine authority of the church has asserted the mathematical certainty of the historic episcopate the mystical efficacy of the sacraments and has vindicated the church of england as the god-appointed guardian of truth he has fought bitterly any attempt to improve the divorce laws of england much has been done in this line even in spite of his earnest opposition but we now owe it to mr gladstone that there is on england's law books a statute providing that if a wife leaves her husband he can invoke a magistrate whose duty it will then be to issue a writ and give it to an officer who will bring her back more than this when the officer has returned the woman the loving husband has the legal right to reprove her now just what reprove means the courts have not yet determined for in a recent decision when a costermonger admitted having given his lady a taste of the cat the prisoner was discharged on the ground that it was only needed reproof i would not complain of this law if it worked both ways but no wife can demand that the state shall return her man willy-nilly and if she administers reproof to her mate she does it without the sanction of the sovereign however in justice to englishmen it should be stated that while this unique law still stands on the statute books it is very seldom that a man in recent years has stooped to invoke it end of part one of william e gladstone